Hi, plant friends. Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. This is Simon Hill, your host and creator of plantproof.com, your one-stop shop for information on plant-based nutrition. The Plant Proof Podcast is a channel to create thought-provoking conversation with industry leaders, qualified professionals, athletes, and more to help us become more conscious and form healthier and more mindful habits. And now it's time to introduce today's special guest. This week on the Plant Proof Podcast, I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Frank Cusimano. Frank is a current third-year medical student and PhD candidate in nutritional and metabolic biology. Frank has a Bachelor's of Science in Biology, a Bachelor's of Arts in Chemistry, Master's of Science in Bioinformatics, and a Master's of Arts and a Master's of Philosophy in Nutrition and Metabolism. And it doesn't stop there. Frank is a certified personal trainer, an avid vegan athlete, the host of the Surviving Medicine podcast, and a loving husband. Frank currently lives in New York City and is finishing up his thesis, studying bacteria host physiology, and he is 200 plus days into his 400 day running challenge. I think you get the point. This guy is an absolute weapon when it comes to scientific research and clinical application. He's the perfect example of a fusion of science and clinical medicine to help us navigate our way through various topics of discussion like weight loss and nutrition, gut microbiome, is soy healthy? What is the ideal protein consumption and how does this influence longevity? And much, much more. In the show notes, I've included Frank's Instagram, his email, and some links to his post, along with mine on soy, which after the episode, we felt was necessary to summarize. Folks, this is a long one, but it's full of amazing take-home messages. So get out the notepads. I really hope you enjoy it. Frank Cusimano. Now, is that how you pronounce it? Yep. Frank Cusimano. Yep. That's it. And Cusimano, uh, if I was going to guess, I would... I'm over in uh, Europe at the moment. I would probably say that is a name from Italy. It is. It's for. It's a Sicilian. It's a Sicilian name. So yes. Okay. And you did you were you you born and raised in the United States? I was born and raised in the United States. Uh, my parents were. My grandparents were born and raised in Italy. Uh, but my parents, um, ironically, my dad he didn't learn English until he went to school. So he grew up as about as Italian as it gets from an Italian family. Uh, going over to Italy several times, you know, throughout his childhood, but he didn't learn English until he got into middle middle school. When like you know, the kids started making fun of him of, hey, you don't know, uh, you don't know English. What is this? So yeah, I want to jump into all of the the academic side of things and the the handful of degrees that you've you've gone on and completed and and are still completing now and all the academic side of things. But tell us a little bit more about you know. Frank and and your childhood growing up were you know what you were what you were eating and and sort of a little bit of insight into how you looked at the world in terms of health and wellness. So my background is interesting. I guess we'll kind of start all the way back from the beginning. I've lived everywhere throughout the U.S. So I'll take you through my story. But I grew up in Chicago and lived lived in Kansas for for ten years. Um, so I grew up in the Midwest. Midwest diet is the traditional standard American diet. I grew up eating 
terrible foods. Even though my family, you know, my, my father's side is, is fully Italian. I didn't grow up eating a Mediterranean diet. On Sundays, once a week or twice a week, yeah, we would eat a really good Italian meal. But the majority of the week, you know, it was fast food here. It was whatever we could cook. It was a casserole. It was a, um, you know, like whatever was easy for my mom to put together quickly. She worked. um, She was a working mother. There was four of us. I had three older sisters. So whatever was fastest, cheapest, uh, we ate on a daily basis. So I grew up kind of from that standpoint. Um, It wasn't until way later that I started to get into the health and wellness stuff. And that wasn't until high school. And was that, you know, being a, a sort of teenage guy at high school and being surrounded by sport and, and things like that? Was it initially from a, a, an athletic point of view or what was sort of the inspiration behind looking at, at food and what you were eating and, and becoming health conscious? Yeah, so so before before we go into the vegan and the, and the plant-based stuff, I started as someone that was like that was really interested in food and nutrition because of because of sport only right i played football which is american football and then i also played regular football so that in american soccer i played both growing up i played track i i mean i did anything i played baseball growing up but in high school is where the real foundation really started i had i was living in texas at the time texas football is known for being you know quite ambitious quite heavy and so Everyone, everyone on my team was talked to about nutrition and supplements and what you need to eat, not from a health perspective, right? It was, okay, it's the off season. You have four months. How much, how much weight can we pack on you because you're a lineman? Or how much weight can we transition so that you become stronger in the gym while, while not losing your speed and your agility? So I, I went kind of the, the typical bro science weightlifter, bodybuilder mentality. And I was in the gym once or twice a day, every single day. My primary diet was as much food as I could consume. You know, I would, I would have practice in the morning. I would start with huge gallons of uh, just a huge glass of milk. I would start with, you know, the traditional very heavy peanut butter, milk, bread. After practices, I would go to McDonald's and get like four double cheeseburgers, or I would go to Subway and get like two foot longs. Like, I, I weighed about 200 pounds back then. So I was a, I was a big guy for my height. How old were you then? I, this was starting at 15. So 15 to 18. I was a, I was a big 15, eight, you know, 18 year old. I was the kid that was an offensive lineman. As I, as I got older, um, I kind of grew out of my, my weight, but I was doing powerlifting in, in, in high school. I was doing football primarily. And that's what the route I was on. So my nutrition background was, okay, let's talk about the traditional macros. Let's talk about the traditional timing, recovery, post-exercise, shakes, you know, the, the traditional, let's do this bodybuilding style, if that makes sense, or powerlifting style of, of eating. Uh, yeah. Like, like you said, a little bit of bro science. Is, is that indicative of where you think the, the current state of, you know, training for American football and the young kids coming through now, are they, are they still being put through that similar sort of eating regime? Yeah, I would say about 90% of America is. And it doesn't seem that way from social media. And it doesn't seem that way when you look at the top scientists and nutritionists in the world. But you have to remember in high school, these kids that are playing high school football or playing high school sport, they are not being trained by nutritionists or dietitians. They're being trained by a health coach or a health teacher who probably sometimes went to college, sometimes didn't. They were athletes their whole life. And they're teaching the health phys ed class in high school. And they're also 
a coach for their sport, right? These aren't the best, the guys that are in the best shape. They've just always played sport and they relate what they eat to their size, not necessarily to long-term health and nutrition, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I guess they're, they look sort of benchmarking themselves against these professional NFL players who are all, you know, really big, mature bodies and, and just eating to, to gain calories, not really thinking about their health, which is what you just alluded to there. So that's, that's very interesting that you've, that, that was your growing up experience with food. When did you become inspired to take your diet away from that sort of traditional, you know, macronutrient focus and, and, putting on weight and size through those typical foods and, and look at it from a more health perspective and, and move to a plant-based diet. Yeah. So this is where, this is my, where my, my trajectory changes from everyone else's, right? So I, I graduated from high school in Texas. I went off immediately and I went to college in Boston. I went to Boston University for a year, traditional pre-med. I think I want to do med school route. My first year, I did terrible there. I wasn't happy as a way of stress relief, I learned to run, to work out as a motivation. And I got kind of on this kick of, hey, I want to do triathlons. Very different coming from a kid that was... I started college probably at about 190, you know, 195. By the end of my, my first year in college, I was probably at 175. I was eating still terribly, mind you. But I had got this kick that, hey, I could run and bike and swim. And it was just so much more exhilarating to be on my own, be in my own head, train, manage my own priorities, I guess, with studying and with everything, that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, but I wasn't happy up at Boston. I, I had a lot of things going on. I was with a girl that I, I think I was that I almost got engaged to. And that was really the, the story behind my... I didn't know what I was doing. So I made a ra- drastic change. And I ended up leaving Boston University after my first year. I, I transferred then to SMU in Dallas. SMU is a great school. It's in the heart of Dallas where my family lived. So for me, it was I wasn't living at home, but I was you know close to my family. Um, and that's something I liked. I ended up finishing during when I got to um, college at SMU. I started with the triathlon stuff again. And so I started riding. There's a big lake in Dallas where everyone that bikes is at. So I was doing some biking. I was doing a lot of running. And I ran into this kid that ended up being one of my best friends. His name is Nick Poole. And he was like, hey, man, you're doing this all wrong. You're running way too much. You need to stop running. You need to just sit on the bike and enjoy it because biking is so much more fun than running. And I was like, all right, man, I'll take you up on that. But I was still training for triathlon. So he, he drugged me and he said, all right, there's a, there's a bike race coming this weekend. Let's do it. He goes, I'll, I'll give a friend. I have a friend that'll lend you a, an actual road bike. You can actually come and race. It'll be all beginners. You can just have fun. And I was like, all right, whatever. You know, what, what does it hurt? I went and did the bike race. It was fun. Um, I enjoyed it. And then the next weekend, he was like, all right, man, now is the state championship. So we're going to do the next bike race. And I, was, I, I came from a triathlon background, which is, you know, you do a few races a year, you, you taper, you prepare. And this was so different. He's like, no, we race every weekend. We race multiple times a week. Like this is cycling. You don't, you don't need that time off. And so I was like, whatever, I'll, I'll do it. So we drove down to the Texas state championship race. I was now mind you in cycling, there's like different categories of racing. I was at the very bottom, the new, new kids. Somehow I hung in there and ended up actually winning the race. So, so that, that to me was kind of like a, well, kind of one of those, Oh shit moments. Oh, I don't, I don't know if I can swear, swear, but that was kind of one of those like, Oh shit moments. Like, Oh, 
I can do this. You know, triathlons are fun, but this is this is competition. Like this is my old football days, right? And so that's what started it. That started the impetus of like, what can I do to maximize my recovery, get my fuel better, um, while all my friends that I was racing with were eating the traditional American diet. They were doing. They were great cyclists, but they weren't really optimized for cycling. And so, for me, it became a real transition of within the next about eighteen months. I moved up from category five to cap- category two. I moved up real fast. I was racing with pros, cat ones, cat twos, real fast. But I was studying in school. I was working a side job, and I was trying to race, you know, three to five nights a week and train seven days a week. And so for me, something had to give. And the only thing that I knew that could push me in one direction was food and nutrition only because of the biochemistry courses and the health courses I was taking. I wasn't taking any nutrition courses. I was just taking strict biochemistry. What does the body use? How does it burn fuel? And that kind of transitioned my shift of, hey, I think I can eliminate some of these other things. I don't need the amount of protein I was consuming. I need more carbohydrates. I need to maximize my fuel reserves before or after exercise racing from a totally different perspective than my peers because I was optimizing my fuel um, stores right at the start of races and what was in my blood, as opposed to the traditional route, which is you start a race, you eat a few hours before a race, you start a race. And then after 15, 20 minutes, maybe you take a goo or you take a gel or a bar. I was doing it the exact opposite. And at the start of the race, I was taking fuel in immediately because I knew that was what was going to be burned. And if I had a higher store at the beginning then I was going to be better prepared to attack early and to have some of those key race decisions early on that other people weren't prepared for. And, and what year was this that you were going through that transition? This was 2000, uh, 2008, 2009. So this was, this was like 10 years ago almost. And so you started to you know, relook at your macronutrients there and you were using your, what you were learning at university. But what resources did you, did you go to or were you, you know, were you doing your own review of clinical studies or where did you find information on animal products and make the decision of, hey, I'm going to actually cut animal products out and just eat plant-based foods? It wasn't, you know, at that time in my life, none of it was looking at um, the research. I mean, I was a kid in kids in college don't look at research. They don't know how to review scientific articles. They don't know how to review peer-reviewed research. They don't know how to find it. Right? Most of the lay people don't. Besides Google, Google doesn't even show you the actual science. Right? Um, it was literally just understanding the biochemistry of the human body. What do muscles do? How do they take in fuel? How do they convert glucose to ATP? How do they do these fundamental physiology changes that you need from calcium to magnesium, phosphorus? Why are these things needed on a cellular level? And then it was, oh, I can cut out this food. This food isn't going to give me that. And so it was, it was very, I would say, like tinkering like a scientist on my own body of what I could take in. And so I started just eliminating stuff. I eliminated uh, peanut butter pretty early. Now I eat it you know, pro- probably regularly, but I eliminated peanut butter. I eliminated um, all meat besides chicken. Everything besides egg whites and chicken and turkey kind of were my eliminating things. So typical, the, the health diet that you hear now and then I slowly cut that out because I was like looking at the actual ratio of what I needed to recover. And I was like, I'm getting way too much of this. I'm not getting enough of this. This is what I need. This is what my body needs. Where is this stuff coming from? Oh, I don't need to eat the chicken because the chicken is fed on grains. It's fed on this. That is what is higher niacin. That is what has the higher B vitamins. That is what has the higher 
um, actual nutrients that I need. So let me go straight to the source. And so it was, how can I condense, um, I guess, plant foods into something that would allow me to basically take the middleman out um, and put that directly into my body, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely does. And we're going to jump into protein and longevity later on in this conversation. So just to uh, sort of preface that conversation while we're talking about your journey, so without going into too much depth, um, what was your macronutrient sort of breakdown like before you made these changes? And what was it like after you realized you didn't need as much protein? Yeah, I think so the the basic nutrient kind of breakdown that I was at the time living by was probably close to um, two grams per body weight for, for pounds. So if I, I weigh about 150 pounds, I was trying to take in 250, 200 grams, grams of protein, which is a lot, you know, that's heavy. Your body cannot digest that. Like your that just, that sits in your stomach, your body cannot break it down. Um, and now, I mean, the, what I live with nowadays, I'm at like 0.7 to one um, gram per body weight. So I'm only taking in probably about 150 to 180 max. Sometimes I'm as low as like 120. Um, and I work out every day I lift or, or run almost every single day. So for me, it's probably where it needs to be. And that's where I saw the biggest shift because I realized that the majority of the, the restructuring on a cellular level that your body needs actually comes from the form of carbohydrates where your body needs to restore, re, replace the fuels and immediately so that it can then use the amino acids that are already in the system, um, maybe just 20 or 40 grams after you know a hard workout or after a race. But the majority of it had to be in the, in the form of calories, if that makes sense. Sure. Now, you, you clearly have a, a thirst for ac- the, the academic side of things and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. ongoing education. And I don't think I've ever met someone who has completed as many courses as yourself, university degrees, um, which I mentioned in the introduction to this episode. What's what's the inspiration behind, you know, completing all of these courses and, and you're now doing your PhD, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what what do you what do you see yourself sort of doing once you've completed all of the studies? Is it continuing this academic route um, or is it clinical? Where, where do you see things going? I'll get to that answer by continuing with my story because it, it gets better we'll get through some of the dry stuff. So for my background, it's not like anyone else. I was originally pre-med, was finishing up college in 2011, but wasn't really set on on being pre-med. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I took a few really cool genomics courses and that's how the, that was when like the revolution of genome editing and gene next generation sequencing was coming to life. So I was I really liked medicine, but I I wanted to figure out if there was more. And so I was like, well if I want to do medicine, I can do it later on. So I left, I left college, I left university, I directly went into Johns Hopkins at a program with a master's in bioinformatics. And that was more of the, let's look at this systematically, like what does the genes in your body do? How can we use them? How can we look at them? How can we analyze them? How can we annotate them to figure out how they play a role in health, disease, functioning, basic, very molecular, what I would call pathophysiology of the genome. That was what that master's degree was. And I was focused on that. I was working with several clinicians at the time. So I was working directly with gastroenterologists that were studying the liver, that were studying the genome in the liver, trying to figure out how gene expression in the liver could be altered or changed to affect 
fatty liver disease, hepatocellular carcinoma, all of the different issues that we have in the liver. And so I was working with the gastroenterologists, which are in America, are one of the only specialties that should receive specialty training in nutrition, right? These are the guys that deal with the celiac patients. These are the guys that deal with specific patients that have gastrointestinal nutritional deficiencies or issues, B12, you know, pernicious anemia. These are the ones that really deal with it from that, from that standpoint. And I was going into the in research every day while I was doing my master's. And the gastroenterologists were asking me, because I was the athlete, I was the, the fit one, how they could have as much energy as me. They were like, you know, I eat every day, I feel good, but you know, I'll eat lunch and then I just feel foggy the rest of the day, I feel terrible. And so it was quite honestly, they were asking me for nutritional advice. And I'm like, you guys are the gastroenterologists. You should not be asking me. Like, you should know this way better than me. But the fact of the matter is they didn't, you know, and it's, it's no fault of their own. They were really bright. They're awesome scientists. Some of them are still doing great re- research today, but they're not trained in t- to look at the body like I was studying the body in college on my own, right? It wasn't in a course. It was always on my own. You'll find as we talk about my story, the fact that I'm taking these courses, but I'm studying on my own. I am not necessarily looking at what is in textbooks. I'm looking at the, the literature. I'm, I'm tinkering. I'm looking at things in a different way. And so I was talking to these guys. I was giving them nutritional advice and they were losing 20 pounds in, in a couple of weeks. They were losing drastic weight. Their energy was up. They were boundless. And they were like, I wish we had learned this. I wish we knew this type of stuff. And it was that along with the combination of other clinical duties that I was helping with that kind of made me think, you know what, I need to go back into medicine because doing this research, doing the scientific research that I was doing at the time was great. I was getting a lot out of studying the liver. I really loved the actual scientific nature of being exploring in your mind, exploring. I was like, I can do so much more. I can help bring some of this information to the future. And that's what I wanted to do. And so there was a stint in there where I did about six months of a regular desk job. And I know that that sounds really boring, doing a desk job where you're not doing anything fun. And that was training you know, some, some clinical people, but it was a desk job. And I had gone from doing research to a desk job. And in my head, it flipped a switch. And it was the switch of, I do not want to sit at a desk or I do not want to sit at a job that is routine, that is mundane for the rest of my life. Science affords you the ability to ask questions, to explore, to think creatively, to dive into your childlike curiosity, to do these things that you know, we do as a kid when we're playing in the dirt or when we're trying to see how high we can jump. And science affords us that ability to do it and get paid to do it. No other specialty besides maybe creative design or maybe some of the more creative fields allows you to do that. And so I applied to medical school then at that point and decided I wanted to go to the medical route with the idea that I was going to stay in science. In the US, you're either a a clinical physician, you're a scientist, or you're a clinical physician, meaning you are doing basic science research. You're still seeing patients a few times a week. You're teaching residents and fellows, but 80% of your time is spent doing research. And that that was the route I realized I wanted to go into. So I applied to medical school, got in, And then immediately, I was like the go-to nutrition guy at my medical school for good reason. That's what I wanted. But it was ironic because now I was in a place where, you know, when I was doing research at UT Southwestern and at Johns Hopkins, I was in a position to where I was lower than everybody. But because I had a wealth of knowledge in a specific area, everyone looked up to me in one area, right? I was 
an almost professional athlete. I was racing around the US. I was training. I was more fit than any of them. When I got to medical school, I was down at the bottom with everyone else. Everyone saw me as a peer. And that was great, right? It's great to be a peer, to be with everyone in medical school. But I was trying to give my classmates nutritional advice and they'd come to me and then they would question everything that I said. Because they would, they would say, you know, we're learning the same exact thing you're learning. That's not right. That doesn't fit. That doesn't follow what we're learning in class. It doesn't really fit the guidelines. So I'm going to stick with what I'm doing. Mind you, there are physicians nowadays, there are physicians today, but uh, that kind of triggered in my head that being at the same level and just being a physician isn't going to get me the credibility and the expertise with my peers. It will with people that are outside of science. It will with people that are above me or below me. But with your direct peers, unless you have a leg up, unless you do something different, you will always be looked at the same way. And that's, how, that's why I decided to take the detour into going and getting my PhD. What I find really interesting there was you were, you know, you were talking to your peers through, you know, your medical um, peers, presumably about their diet and a plant-based diet. And you're, you're sort of saying that it wasn't what they were learning. So we're, because I'm sort of of the understanding that there's not a whole lot of nutrition being taught in, in the medical degree or is that, has that changed? Like what, what was being taught to you as you were going through and what were your peers learning, which was potentially different to, to what you were telling them? No, there is, there's very little to no nutrition research in medical school. Granted, nowadays there's some schools that are great. There's some schools that are actively putting nutrition into the curriculum, but the nutrition is very different. And this is kind of brings me to the, to the first part of that I know it's like on a scientific level is there's a difference between nutrition for a weight loss perspective. And then there's a difference between nutrition for metabolic disease, right? Which is, or metabolic or genomic diseases based off of, um, let's say you can't digest specific oligosaccharides. Let's say you can't break down specific proteins, right? Let's say you can't metabolize nitrogen compounds, right? There's specific metabolic diseases that, or genomic diseases that prevent your body to break down stuff. And then there's a third part. And so we kind of learned the first part of like calories in, calories out for weight loss. We kind of learned that in medical school. But most of the biochemistry courses are taught on the, the standpoint of let's look at macronutrients. Let's look at reducing you know, your overall caloric intake, which isn't necessarily the whole, the whole picture. It's also looked at giving the right nutritional advice for patients that are in severe, um, that have genetic defects. But that third component, which is actual health, longevity, and prevention, they're not taught that at all. The, I only had one lecture that I can relate that to at all. And that was a, a lecture given by Dr. Mann, a great professor about calorie restriction. When you talk about the Wolford studies back in like the 90s from the guy in Arizona who put patients on a huge calorie restricted diet, that was kind of the only close to prevention longevity lecture that I ever had in medical school. There's a couple of key words, you know, that you just mentioned there, calorie restriction and weight loss, which I know people will be very interested in, especially, you know, from, from listening to you, you're this perfect mash of scientists, medical doctor in training, getting his PhD. So you're, you're coming from both angles. Where do you sit in terms of advice for for someone who wants to lose weight, but wants to do it in a manner which is promoting longevity, is promoting you know, long-term health of their body. If you want to lose weight, right? If you just want to lose weight, 
pick any fad diet, stick to it for a couple months, and then find something sustainable. That will make you lose weight, right? Getting rid of some of the metabolic disorder will affect blood glucose. It'll maybe affect your blood pressure, maybe some of your cholesterol stuff, but it's not going to prevent long-term disease progression when you look at cardiovascular disease. It's not going to prevent issues like Alzheimer's, uh, dementia. It's not going to affect other things like changes in your arterial stiffness. It's not going to prevent other issues that come up just because of weight loss. So where I stand is, you know, I'm, I'm very science-minded. I'm, I'm like a scientist. And so from that, I, I study people just as much as I study the science and the nutrition. And I, my wife is not vegan. She eats very healthy. She knows all the science because I explain it all to her. She knows all of it. She eats you know, more healthy than my family, more than most people I know, but she's not 100%. So for me, I don't talk as an e-vegan advocate. And that's where I think a lot of the, the vegan or the plant-based movement has done a disservice to science because they're just way too in your face of this, that, and the other, and you're wrong, blah, 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 blah. You have to look at it objectively from both perspectives. And coming from my background, multiple colleagues of mine that I work with that know that I don't eat meat, they don't know I'm vegan. I don't, I don't say that. And they never bring that up in a conversation. I'll go out to dinner with colleagues. I'll go out to dinners with scientific professors and they will never once realize that everything on my plate was not animal-based, right? Because I don't make a big deal out of it. Now, if they ask, when they ask, because they eventually do after repeated times, they eventually ask. And that's where we get into a really good discussion about the facts, about the science. And that's where I win people over. And that's what I think the plant-based movement should be doing and not being so confrontational because there's always two sides of every story. And you have to, you have to know exactly where the science falls and the facts lie. Because if you don't hit those perfectly, then you're going to lose people and you're going to miss out on teaching people what they need to know before they immediately shut off, if that makes sense. Made some great, great points there. Now, one of the common things that we hear, particularly from, you know, it could be from personal trainers or sort of weight loss coaches and, um, you know, calories, a calorie, if you want to lose weight, just get into a deficit, it, you know, a calorie deficit, you will lose weight. And you've just alluded to the fact that yes, you will, you know, lose weight regardless of the type of diet, whether it's paleo or keto or whatnot, if you're in a calorie deficit, from what I can hear that you're saying is that you will lose weight. Now, practically speaking though, for those listening, for to lose weight and to promote longevity, what foods are you are you recommending? What would you tell people to reduce from their diet or remove from their diet completely? And what would you be telling them to eat more of? If we look at strictly the facts, the longest living populations, reducing the amount of protein in your diet is one of the only things that can exacerbate longevity drastically, right? And so there's different pathways in the human body, uh, metabolic pathways, right? We have the mTOR pathway that promotes inflammation and that has to do with cell survival and cell, cell connections and the cytoskeleton rearrangements, apoptosis. And then we have the KRAS pathway that's more stimulated, less by protein, but more by sugars. And these are like direct glucose, like these are like straight sugar infusions. And, and that pathway has to do more with the inflammatory pathway, it has to do with activating specific genes in your body that lead to un uncontrolled cell division and some of these other pathways. So for me, where I stand and what I tell most people is you have to eliminate the foods that are going to activate those pathways as big as possible. Bringing that to lay terms, it's 
Let's cut down on your protein in- intake. Let's add complex carbohydrates. Remove anything that you know causes inflammation in your body, right? Dairy, cheese, seeds, uh, not, not seeds, but like things that have been roasted, that have been heavily processed. Let's just go down to the bare bones and then add back. So for most people, when I'm talking about weight loss, I said, let's move to plants, just vegetables and fruits as, as whole and as process, unprocessed as possible. If you want to cook it, go for it. The science is still out on a lot of things like olive oil and, and some of the other things, but that's pretty much my, my go-to. And with a lot of people, so where my story gets kind of fun is when I moved up to New York to do my PhD, I decided that I needed to be good at doing this hands-on with people. And so I got my, my personal training certificate and I started training at a gym right near Times Square. And that's where I really got to work with patients again. I got to work with clients. I got to deal with their health issues and realize that things aren't always so black and white. And so what I was finding is sometimes affecting just someone's diet wasn't enough. And you have to look at other things to help them. And that's where I think we'll probably end up talking about some of the things like calories in, calories out, timing of your calories, weight loss, nutrition, kind of the overall standpoint of what are you doing on a day-to-day basis to lower your cortisol levels, lower your stress levels, and bring it back to where you can put your body in a, in a state of rest and relaxation to utilize those nutrients to the best of their ability without adding them, putting them directly into, into the storage component, which would be adipocytes, which would be fat cells, if that makes sense. And you, you've given us an indication as to where your protein intake used to, used to sit and, and where, where it was after you made some changes. And you just mentioned then that one of the big recommendations you would be making for people that want to lose weight and also promote longevity is to reduce their protein intake. Just looking at that in terms of actual numbers, what, what does the research sort of support in terms of what is a safe protein you know, level of consumption per day for, for a, a woman and, and a man? Yeah, I think, I think for most people, kind of the average should be about between 0.6 grams per body weight to one is kind of the safe. If you're, at, if you're a bodybuilder, if you're lifting a lot, you can probably go to one. That's probably perfectly fine. I know a lot of bodybuilders, I think Nimai Delgado eats about one gram per, per pound body weight. That's where most people should sit. On a scientific basis, your body doesn't need more than... So here's the confusing part is some people go by kilograms, some go by pounds. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to make sure I make that distinction because I think I didn't and I don't want to confuse any listeners out there. If you're going off the pound system, you probably don't need more than 0.5 or, or even 0.3, even less, right? So that's like 50 to 70 grams total of protein in a given day. That's probably all you need as long as you get the nine essential amino acids, which you can get through beans and rice and corn, mixing those threes up, you'll get all of the ones that you need, right? That's, those are kind of the three staples that I, I think for a lot of people to, to utilize. For people on the kilogram side, that is where that 0.7 ratio is probably a little better. So for myself, I weigh 75 kilograms because I lift and I work out every single day religiously. I'm at about one. So I take in at about, about 150 grams. Most people probably only need to take in 0.5. Six, so you're looking at maybe eighty to a hundred per kilogram, if that makes sense, right? So it still comes out to about that forty to to seventy grams total per day. If you're really lifting heavy, then maybe bump it up. Okay, and you you just mentioned before that the the timing of calories. So 
we're sort of, we've just spoken about how much protein we need, but where does eating food early in the morning or eating food in the afternoon or eating food late at night before you go to bed, where does, where does all of that sort of sit and, and what does the evidence support and how does this affect our ability for our body to thrive and also how does it affect your ability to lose weight or even gain weight if you were um, working out and wanting to put on size? Yeah, so this is, I'll give you the my direct answer first, which is the easiest answer, the simplest method is consume the majority of your calories between 8 a.m. and 2 p.m. So the first half of the day, consume the majority of your calories. Um, if you want to fast, the science isn't sound that you need to fast more than about 12 to 16 hours. I sit at right between about 12 to 14 hours most day of where I'm not eating. But the science is pretty sound that eat as early as you can throughout the day. And then if you want to fast, move that towards the end of the day and then overnight. Now, let, let's break that down and say why, right? This is the part that I love because even physicians I work with, even people that I work with, not you know trying to diminish anything they've learned, but we all know that circadian rhythm, sleep plays a huge role in our muscle recovery our cortisol levels, our insulin, our insulin levels, right? If you eat late at night, it does affect your sleep. Hands down, it affects your sleep. Your sleep, which is you know run by your suprachiasmatic nucleus in your in your brain, your that control center affects so many different things hormonally and also on a gene expression level. It changes the um, what your body does throughout the day, right? In the morning, your body might primarily wants to break down carbohydrates, break down fats. So that's glycogenolysis, glycogenolysis. And then it also wants to break down lipolysis, use that energy. So if you're eating those foods, your body breaks it down, uses it immediately to make ATP, to make energy and to, and to use it as fuel throughout the day. At night, your body flips that, right? So it changes its gene expression to do more of the protein building and rest and recovery aspect of your human body, right? So if you're eating late at night, high carbohydrates, high fat foods late at night, those systems for typically breaking that stuff down are not actually, the, the actual enzymes are not actually at high levels. So your body will not break those down as efficiently at night as they do in the morning. So from that standpoint, excess calories at that time are more predisposed to be put into storage, which are going to be put immediately to your fat cells, right? That, that extra fat. Protein, maybe not as much, right? Because protein has some different pathways. Protein is being used for stored. So I always tell bodybuilders in this that want to fast. If you want to fast, eat early in the morning, start your fast early in the day, like 4 p.m., but just because you want to continue to build size and continue to build you know, weight and maybe bulk, bulk up some muscles right before you go to bed, it may affect your sleep a little bit, but go ahead and have a protein shake or something. I'm not saying this for the average person. I'm only saying this for people that want to build muscle. Um, and that's so that it can directly go to those pathways that are upregulated when you sleep, right? So this is that, that classic example of we know that blood sugar changes throughout the day. But somehow we told ourselves that, you know, what we eat doesn't affect um, our, our, our fat storage and how our body utilizes those calories. But we know that our glucose and our insulin levels do change. So 
that's kind of my overall standpoint. And that has huge backings on science. If you want to dive into the science, I am more than happy to, because that is where a lot of my recent posts that I'm doing on, on Instagram right now are coming from. Yeah, sure. So just to clarify that, so you're personally speaking, you, you have your first meal around 8 a.m. Is that right? Here, here's a, and I always tell listeners this, if there are anyone in that, here's my stuff is I'm learning just as you guys are. I'm a, I'm a student, I'm a scientist. This recent stuff on fasting, intermittent fasting and time of day, I probably didn't become aware to until a couple months ago. So I'm shifting everything as, as recent as possible because I'm just fascinated by this right now. So for me, I wake up every morning. Some mornings I eat something. Most mornings I just drink water and I run. I'm doing this big running challenge right now. So every single morning I wake up and I run without eating anything. And then I have a really big smoothie. My smoothies are typically very calorie dense. I typically have flax seeds and ground flax seeds, ground chia seeds. I have beetroot powder. I have several bananas. I have spinach or kale. I have probably about 20 to 25 grams of plant protein. Uh, mixed up between five different brands that I like. I'm putting cinnamon, coconut water, and blueberries. So it is dense. And it's typically about one to one and a half liters of smoothie. So this thing comes out to be very calorically dense, but I just ran, I just worked out. And then my next meal, typically because I'm at work, I don't live by what I what I preach as much. And that is just happen standpoint of how I work and in my daily schedule. I would love to at noon to eat again. So typically my smoothies are, you know, 9, 9 a.m. ish. I would love to eat at 11 or 12 again, maybe eat a giant salad or eat something, you know, that was a little more calorie dense like rice in, in a salad format. But I typically don't have time to leave lab. I'm typically doing experiments. I'm typically doing review literature or I'm in meetings or I'm going back and forth between the hospital side and some of the research side. So the majority of the time, I literally have huge things of oatmeal that I keep at work with me and peanut butter. Um, most days I just eat oatmeal and peanut butter throughout the entire day until I go home. And so that's not where I want it to be. Um, but that's kind of how I do it now. And then when I get home at dinner for dinner um, is when I eat you know, more of my greens and my vegetables and more of my vegetables. So those are I'm typically eating later. I typically work a lot of hours. So sometimes I'm not eating till 8 or 9 at night. That is way past my recommendation of when I tell people to eat. Hands down, I will admit that I'm trying to change that. But that's typically my schedule, if that makes sense. But that, that is not what I recommend. Based on the, the enzymes and, and what you were saying in, with regards to having greater amount of enzymes later in the day for breaking down and use, utilizing protein, are you recommending that the, the last meal of the day is a a different ratio of these macronutrients and is higher in protein and lower in carbohydrates or is that getting a little bit too complex for, for people to follow? Yeah, I think it's getting really... I think it's going to get complex for people to follow. For bodybuilders, I think they're going to be able to do it better. Hands down, in the morning, your fat enzymes and your carbohydrate enzymes are up. So if you're eating high fat or high carbohydrate foods, it's better in the morning. At night, it's definitely more the amino acid route. That's not something that has been studied clinically. This is all you know, scientific research that people have been doing. So I don't know if there's enough clinical evidence to support that from a human population standpoint. But in most of the... If you look at the centenarian populations, the majority of them, if they consume animal products, which most of them have fish or you know, meat occasionally you know, a few times a week, 
those centenarian populations that have the long, longest life on, on the planet, if they consume those, they typically consume them at lunch. And lunch in most of those areas typically are later, right? They're, it's like, a, it's like a, a 1 to 3 p.m. And that's their biggest meal of the day. That's their lunchtime. That's when, the, that's when all the businesses close down. People go home. They eat lunch with their family. School kids aren't even in school. They go home, right? Like if I'm thinking of my classic Italian, you know, kind of more of the Sardinian lifestyle. That's when their actual maybe if they have fish, maybe if they have uh, um, anchovies or you know or, or anything like that, they're typically eating it at that time of the day. Yeah, I was in uh, Puglia a couple of weeks ago for a wedding, and it was amazing driving through some of the towns at that sort of one, two, three o'clock time, and all the roller doors to the shops are down, and yeah. <laughs> you know it looks like a bit like a ghost town. So if we do dive into some of the the actual science on this mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, the time of the day that you're eating your calories or the types of um, macronutrients, what, what, are, what have you seen and, and what, what can we learn from that? So I think the, the biggest things that I always say is the later you eat any calories, right, even if it is more of the protein stuff, no matter whatever you eat, the later you eat, it predisposes you to a few things, right? One, throws off your circadian rhythm so you're not going to give as good sleep. Sleep affects memory, it affects repair, it affects so many different things throughout your body. It also affects your proteome. So in your blood, everyone thinks of blood sugar, everyone thinks of white blood cells or red blood cells, but in your blood, you have circulating proteins that are used throughout your body, whether it's albumin or or different things, right? I think there's a good study that was done recently that looked at the proteome of the blood throughout different times of the day. And they found that there's over 2,000 proteins that can be linked back to metabolic disorders throughout the day. And close to about 30 of those enzymes directly were linked to people that ate the majority of their calories at night. And those all had to do with proteins that were affecting what we call circadian misalignment. So eating at different times, and they regulate glucose homeostasis, energy metabolism with implications that were affecting metabolic physiology. So eating the same terrible foods in the morning versus at night, we already know it's going to have a shift in your proteome based off of the circadian rhythm um, pathways and these other enzymes that are activated. And that can predispose you to have some of these metabolic disorders that we have. Um, And also eating later, there's a good French study that recently came out that showed that people that eat later on average are have a two-fold increase in their chance of getting prostate cancer. And I think what was the other one? There was a, there's a female cancer. I can't remember if it was ovarian or cervical cancer, but one of those specifically, I know for men, for sure, it was prostate cancer that men that eat a huge meal after 9.30 PM are two times likely as having being diagnosed with prostate cancer as opposed to other ones. And it, you know, it's really just the time of day. And that's the part that people that actually I'm going to be publishing on my Instagram within the next week. So keep a lookout for that one or for anyone that listens to this. I don't know when this is going to go live, but I will actually have the studies on there so that people can dive into it. Yeah, I'm in the in the show notes. I'm going to put a link to your uh, Instagram because you you are posting everything we're talking about. You and and it's why I was really drawn to your Instagram when we first made contact. Is that you're posting a lot of these clinical studies or scientific studies and showing the evidence base for what you're saying. And real real fast on that, before we dive into more of the science, the reason I'm doing that. So I've had these people that I've had a lot of 
vegan and plant-based advocates that have reached out to me like, oh, if you put vegan more or you put vegan in your posts more, you'd get more of the vegan community to support you or to back you. To them, my only response is that I'm not doing this for the plant-based and the vegan community. If you notice, if you actually scroll down on my posts, the majority of people that are commenting are physicians. They're doctors, they're medical students, and that's the target I'm looking for. I don't want to bring this information to the general public. I think it's good. I think it needs to. I think that's what you, that's what Rich Roll, that's what all these other guys are, are, are here to do. My job and my mission is to bring this information into medical education. So right. filling that void of, of what's missing from you know their, their courses and even once they've graduated. Yeah. And them not telling me, oh, so you've read a few nutrition books. Great, you can, you can add nutrition into a medical school. This is saying, no, I want to be more of the department chair. I want to be a, um, an academic medical educator. I want to work in the dean's office. I want to create the curriculums and I want to restructure them so that we put nutrition and prevention as a priority as opposed to what we're putting the priority of medical education right now. And that's not going to come from someone who doesn't have a degree in this, who hasn't done the science, who hasn't read all this. And so my target right now is going into the nitty gritty, talking to physicians, talking to them, teaching them how to train their patients, because that's where I think we're going to have the lasting effect, even at least in America, because that's where we're deficient right now. We're not deficient in the general public information. There's movies like What the Health. There's movies like Forks Over Knives, right? The general public is going to believe what they want to believe. It's physicians that you have to convince, in my opinion. And that's the route I'm going with. That's powerful. It's a, it's a really powerful movement and, and message that you are doing there. And, and I know I had uh, Dr. Michelle McMacken on, oh, yeah. on the she's podcast. Great. She's yeah. great. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, from what you're saying, you guys have a lot in common. She's very passionate about educating other doctors and, mm-hmm. and helping to fill that void. Just to recap, though, on on the the weight loss side of things for the listeners, if you were going to just summarize, I guess at a high level, a handful of top tips for someone to to walk away with who is looking to lose weight in a healthy manner, how would you sum sum that up? I would say move back to the basics. If you're religious or not, I go from I'm not I'm not that religious, but I bring it to a religious standpoint in America because it relates to a lot of people for some reason. And I say, I only can cons- only consume anything that God produced directly himself that came out of the earth. And so for me, that's really easy to do from anything that isn't living that produced from the earth, right? That's grains, that's nuts, that's seeds, that's fruits, that's vegetables. And I stop at that unprocessed, if it's in the raw form that God intended it to be, then that's what I wanted. Animals I don't consider as being in their raw form because they were not meant to be um, to be grown for to be eaten by humans. They, you know, not from a God from a God perspective, that doesn't really help the scientific perspective. But that's what I tell people because it, it's easy for them to relate. Um, but for weight loss, I say cut your cut your protein intake, move to whole foods, shift your calories early in the morning. Let's talk about your hydration. And then let's talk about your alcohol consumption because they're all interrelated. And that is kind of my go-to tips. Exercise at least 150 minutes a week, not because of weight loss perspective, but exercise 150 minutes a week because of disease prevention um, and cardiovascular health and pulmonary health, which is has lasting effects from that standpoint, if that makes sense. So those are kind of my go-to like for anyone that wants to lose weight, do those things. And what if, if someone's listening and they're being told, 
that the best diet for them to lose weight is low carbohydrate, high protein. What does the science does the science support a low carbohydrate? The you know we see now you know things can can go sort of viral quite quickly with social media, and we see the keto craze. Where does the science sit in terms of supporting these low carbohydrate, high protein diets for immediate fat loss? Yeah, they work for long longevity and disease prevention. They do not work at all. So. Let's break down the difference between paleo and keto, right? Paleo is going to be a more high protein diet, right? Obviously, it's high fat because every single piece of meat that you put in your body also has a high percentage of saturated fat and fat in general. Keto diet is going to be shifting more towards just straight fats, right? Like let's eat more of the coconut oil, uh, the avocados, the um, ghee, the butter, the lard, anything that's more of the fat things. You will lose weight immediately on a lot of those methods, right? You're losing water weight immediately. You're breaking down your glycogen stores. Your body can hold close to about 2,000 grams of glycogen. Now, if you look at that from a, a, a weight per weight perspective, that's huge, right? You're going to feel better because you weigh a lot less. You're not going to be absorbing the amount of fat that you're taking in because your body cannot absorb high levels of fat, but it's not good long term. And here's why I say that is let's first look at the high protein. So the paleo standpoint, right? There's several different amino acids. A lot of them have implicated in cancer and longevity research. We know that in animals, if we remove serine, valine, threonine, we remove just those three amino acids, we can double the lifespan of most mammals, right? So removing those from the diet, we can double the lifespan of really basic mammals or yeast or mice, we can double their long, their lifespan. And that's because serine, valine, and threonine activate the mTOR pathways, which I discussed earlier. I can discuss it more if you have questions. Then let's go to other ones, right? So then we commonly know that we hear that leucine has... So that's just from a longevity standpoint. We also know that specific amino acids have roles in cancer, right? If you look at the branch chain amino acids, and that's valine, leucine and isoleucine. Leucine specifically activates mTOR and that's that grows tumors. So, so they did this really cool study and this is a, a good science paper is they removed, they did what's called a leucine deprivation study. They removed lysine from a diet of tumors to see what the effect of growth was. And they saw the fatty acid synthase dependent enzyme, the synthase was preventing cancer growth through the removal of an amino acid. So that's kind of that's kind of confusing that an amino acid affects a fatty acid synthase that activates the mTOR pathways. So they figured that out. Now they could reverse that by removing leucine and then add, adding palmitic acid. So palmitic acid is a saturated fatty acid. It's like an 18 chain carbon um, fatty acid. If they added that in, that increases fatty acid synthase the cancer continued to grow. So we know that it's not just the, the leucine that's playing a role. It's also the fat, right? It's also some of these fats that increase these pathways. Most people want to say that cancer cells grow on carbohydrates, but that's not necessarily true because the actual growth of them are tightly linked to the availability of leucine and specific amino acids and the enzyme, the gene expression levels of some of these things that are activated by palmitic acid, that which is a saturated acid found in olive oil, palm oil, 
and animal products such as butter, cheese, and milk. So people have to be careful when they say going strictly plant-based because I could eat palm oil and olive oil all day, but that's still not going to be good. Or I can eat um, you know, a high amino acid level protein diet that is strictly plant-based, but that's still not good from a cancer perspective. So if you compare it like a whole, whole plant-based diet with high protein and then a, an animal plant-based high protein diet, your cancer risks are the exact same. So this is the thing that confuses a lot of people is they say, well, I'm eating whole, whole plant-based, but I'm eating a high protein diet. Your cancer, you didn't help yourself on a cancer level at all, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. So the, the interesting thing that I find there is the, the leucine. And, you know, we see these BCAA brands marketing their supplements left, right, and center and seem to be marketed as a, a magic tablet to, to help you with building muscle and recovery and whatnot. What, what's your take on BCAAs? Is it something that you recommend or you, you know, based on that, you would, you would not be recommending? Yeah. So I've, I've talked about some of this in my Instagram, specifically leucine. I've mentioned it and people have been like thrown up. They're like, well, what's your opinion on BCAA? So I'm happy you asked this question. I have not pub- posted on it yet. And I say that because I think there's a time and place um, and everyone's different. If you are an average person not lifting weights to increase muscle mass or muscle size, then increasing, then adding a protein shake that has high levels of BCAAs is going to be neg- have negative damage long term, right? So that's not going to help your longevity. It's not going to help. It's going to maybe increase your risk of cancer. If you're a bodybuilder, someone who's looking to build muscle, do you need BCAAs to build muscle directly? No. Does it help and increase some of the, the building components of your muscles? It has been shown to. Now, you have to be careful. The quality of BCAAs makes a big difference, right? A lot of them are not FDA regulated. A lot of them have heavy metal contaminants. A lot of them come from, some come from plant sources, come from, from animal sources. So I would say find ones that are plant sourced, find ones that have check, been checked for um, heavy metal contaminants. And if you don't know, do what I do, which is find five or six different brands and then rotate between them. So if one of the brands specifically has high levels of a contaminant, but you are not just bombarding your body continuously, maybe you are for a month, and then you're giving yourself four, like if you do one a month, like one specific brand a month, and then rotate, you're giving your body four months to recover. For bodybuilders that are doing this, I say go on cycles with the BCAAs though. Have it maybe because we know that having BCAAs in your system prevents muscle degradation while you're going on a carbohydrate restricted diet. So let's say you're preparing for a contest, you have an eight to six week macro prep for cutting because you are doing a bodybuilding contest, stuff like Nima Delgado does. Right, having BCAAs in your system prevents muscle breakdown while you're in a while you're in a um, caloric deficit. So that's great. But then after your competition, if you're taking a month off, don't have it at all. You don't need it, right? You're, you're not trying to get bigger. You're trying to recover. Let your body recover. Drop down your leucine levels as low as possible so that you're not doing this, you know, every single day. And that's the important part. I think you have to realize that you can do stuff periodically without having it be a long term effect. And, and from a, a food perspective, you, you mentioned there to drop down your leucine. Are you sort of just, you know, suggesting that you're, you're reducing your leucine in your protein powders and BCAAs, or are you suggesting that you're actually picking and choosing foods that are lower in leucine and higher in some of the other amino acids? Yeah. So if you're, if you're just eating the standard diet, plant-based diet, 
I don't think you need to worry about it at all. At all. I think you only need to worry about it if you're supplementing with branch chain amino acids. I think that's the only people that need to worry about it. Other people, if you're keeping your protein level low, maybe to 5 to 10% of your total calories, you're never going to have enough leucine to activate these pathways, really, if that makes sense. So it's really the people that are having that 40% of their diet being protein or people that are supplementing with high levels of BCAAs. Those are the only ones that really need to worry about it. Coming back to the palmitic acid, and you were talking about the fact that if you move to a whole food plant-based diet and you're still at high protein and essentially high fat, lots of the olive oil and stuff, you you may not be getting the uh, benefits of you know reduced risk of cancer. What is your advice on consuming you know the olive oil and, and coconut oil and some of these other processed oils? Yeah, so there's a few different things here. Coconut oil, I will never recommend. I know it's all the craze. Everyone thinks it's God's gift to, you know, it's God's like gift to human mankind. It's not. It, although it has some, you know, although medium chain triglycerides have maybe some benefits with memory retention and maybe mental capacity, you have to realize that, that coconut oil by weight, it's like still 50% saturated fat. Saturated fat, not one thing has come out good about saturated fat. And despite what people want to convince you about shifts in meta-analyses and whatnot, the, the science is clear that saturated fat is not good. You can add saturated fat specifically to someone's diet and they will get type 2 diabetes, they will get metabolic diseases, they will get metabolic issues. And I know that people will not want to believe that. They'll say, oh no, type 2 diabetes is only caused by high sugar. Believe me, I was in a scientific meeting I do my research at Columbia University. I was in a science meeting by a nutrition expert the other day, and he was talking about giving his his mice, because it was a mouse researcher, he gives his mice a diet that leads them, gives them type 2 diabetes, and then he looks at bone growth and other stuff. And I raised my hand and I said, what diet are you using to, to give them type 2 diabetes? And he goes, he goes, oh, a high fat, high saturated diet. And it was just like so clear that it's not necessarily just sugar, if that makes sense. And so, sorry, I went off on that slight tangent for you, but I think I, I don't even know if I answer your question now. No, you have. You, you've definitely, you've, well, you've, you've answered the coconut oil part. What about, yeah. what about olive oil? And, you know, quite often we hear people praise the Mediterranean diet. And, um, you know, they refer to studies on the Mediterranean diet, which may be comparing the Mediterranean diet to a... You know, health health as a spectrum, maybe comparing it to a less healthy diet than the Mediterranean. But is is the Mediterranean diet healthy? Is you know olive oil? You know how how are those people claiming that they thrive on the Mediterranean diet if they are consuming a lot of olive oil? Okay, so let let's break it down. I'm gonna break this down into four points for you. One is we know scientifically, a long term, there is a benefit of the Mediterranean diet, and that is olive oil, nuts, seeds, plants, legumes. Um, and then a little bit of animal protein or fish, right? That has been shown for centenarians for years. We know that that is good. Now, the level of, of olive oil may not make the difference. These people are thin people. They're active. The olive oil they're consuming may be good or bad on a health perspective, but overall, they're doing pretty good. So I would say if you're an average person that doesn't need to lose weight and doesn't have cardiac issues, having a little bit of olive oil in your foods or eating it with things, not going to be a problem, especially for younger people, right? It's not going to be a problem. So those kind of the two, those are the first two parts. The second two parts are people that have cardiac disease and people that want to lose weight. 
If your doctor has told you that you are a risk factor for having a cardiac event, or you already have atherosclerosis, plaque buildup, you have a, a high calcium score. If you have these issues from like a scientific perspective, then eating that much oil has been shown to be negative, to have a negative effect on your long-term outcomes. And that's some great research done by, I can't remember if it was Minnesota or Wisconsin by some researchers, but for cardiac people, you do not need that in your diet. You can eliminate it and it's not going to affect you. It's going to help you on a cardiac perspective. If you want to lose weight, go home, weigh out you know, uh, two tablespoons of oil and look at it, and then look at the nutritional components of two tablespoons of oil and realize how many calories you are consuming from two cups of oil that you could have used water for. right? So for people that want to lose weight, the calories that are shoved in olive oil it's not needed. It's processed. You don't need it. So it's not going to help you lose weight. If anything, it's going to inhibit your body's ability to lose weight eating that because it's just so many more calories than you need. The average person, you're healthy. You don't mind. No big deal. Have it. Don't have it. It's really up to you. I eat a really low fat diet in general because I don't need it. I feel pretty good without it. I don't need it for rest and recovery. I run every single day. I run fast times. I don't think I need it from a joints perspective or a bowel perspective, right? I don't need it for all in these like, you know, these old wife tales of the benefits of olive oil. But if you're an average person, you don't need to lose weight, you're doing pretty good, then eating it isn't going to affect your longevity. We know that. And and I know people listening will will be thinking, okay, well, we hear about bad fats and we hear about good fats. And um, quite often I am asked about fat in the diet and how the body can you utilize that to make cholesterol or other things in the body. What types of plant-based fat sources do you recommend? And, and roughly as a percentage of, I guess, your main macronutrients, how much fat should be in the ideal whole food plant-based diet? Yeah, I think, I think the, the source plays a big deal. Uh, like the source really matters in this, in this specific instance. So for me, the only fats I really consume, and you know, I granted I go out to to dinner with my wife. We live in Manhattan. There's so many great vegan restaurants, or even non-vegan restaurants. I'll order a side. Well, they'll put stuff in olive oil. So the majority of fats in my diet probably come from eating out to where I can't control it. The healthy ones that I like um, pretty much are just avocados, nuts, and seeds. So flax seeds and chia seeds. Those are huge with, if you actually look at omega-3 fatty acids, those are great resources. So I stick to those. And then avocados are probably my main sources of fats in my diet. That's not very much, but every single plant has fat in it, right? People don't think of plants as having fat, but their cellular membranes are made up of a bilipid membrane that has fatty acids in it. It's just such a low concentration and that's not more than your body needs, if that makes sense. So Mine typically comes from eating out, but I recommend when you cook at home, you probably don't need to add it in anything. The healthiest fats are avocado and seeds and nuts. When you go out, if they put olive oil in your stuff, if they put something in, in it forever, if you're not plant-based, if they put some butter in it, you know it's not going to be the end of the day. But don't cook with it or eat it you know, more than once a week, if that makes sense. And if you're eating out and, and have cardiovascular disease, best to ask them to not cook in the oil. Yeah, well, I would try to go bare minimum bones as as possible, right? Eliminate the saturated fat, eliminate the cholesterol, eliminate some of those those heavy things that you're that have shown to increase or exacerbate cardiovascular disease. So stick with the whole 
you know, the, the legumes, the whole, whole wheats, whole grains, but you know, sweet potatoes, uh, asparagus, spinach, like the, the t- traditional tubers and the greens and the vegetables. And then if you're someone that needs a little bit more because you, you know, vegetables aren't going to fill you up. I always tell people, this is my big... So here's a hint. Here's a recommendation I tell a lot of people that most people that go out to a restaurant, if they're trying to cut back, they'll eat a restaurant meal and they won't be, they won't be full. Before you go, have a piece of fruit or two. right? By having a banana or two or having some figs or having just any a pear or an apple or some peaches, having those about 15 to 20 minutes before actually starts to prevent your body from eating as much because your body starts to break those down and the the hormones in your body, the ghrelin, the leptin, all of those shift, the insulin, those shift drastically and affect your satiety levels. So by eating a few pieces before, you already knock those 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 parts of your body. And then that way when you go and eat that salad, you already feel like you have you're a little satiated more than if you just ate the salad from the start. That's a great tip. Now, you mentioned uh, chia and flaxseed for Mm -hmm. uh, omega-3s in the diet. Another craze that everyone would be well aware of is the fish oil, um, the supplement market, which is a billion-dollar market globally. You you see it on billboards. The countries like China are are buying it by the container load from Australia. It's, It's a huge phenomenon up there. If you are... On a, on a whole food plant-based diet, do you need to worry about a supplement for omega-3s or can you just source source all of that from these you know, plant-based omega-3 sources? You know, you can source it completely from the, the plant sources. Um, fish oil comes from the algae in the sea, right? It doesn't come... Fish do not make omega-3s, right? It comes from the, the plants in the sea that the fish eat. And so you can either go straight to those sources, right? Like the the seaweed, the spirulina, the corella, the kelp, the you know, you can go straight to the plant sources. But at the same time, you don't need it if you have a low level of inflammation. Meta-analysis originally showed that having having it would prevent cardiovascular disease and was beneficial from that standpoint. That has since been reversed with reanalysis and additional meta-analyses and has has it now shown that taking a supplement of omega-3 does not affect your chance of getting cardiovascular disease. If you're eating plant-based, it's not going to make a difference really for you because you're already at a low risk of getting cardiovascular events later on in life. Omega-3s, hands down, I will say that omega-3 trumps the the inflammatory pathways like the the traditional COX-1, COX-2 metabolic pathways for inflammatory markers. Omega-3 does prevent some of those inflammatory pathways. But if you have a low inflammation diet, getting a low level of omega-3s through flax seeds or, or through plants itself is more than enough to eliminate any worry later on, if that makes sense. So I was religious. Remember when I was telling you in high school, when I was eating my terrible diet, as much food as I can consume, I was taking omega-3 fatty acids. I got my mom to take them. I got my whole family to take them because I was like, These, this is what's going to help us not die of cardiovascular disease when we get older. I haven't taken any of those pills in like 10 years. My family still takes it because I convinced them that long ago. They still take them and their doctor tells them they need to. You know, the, the science doesn't support that you need to take it. And um, I know I know people listening will will really want your opinion on soy. Um, yeah. 
soy, soybeans, um, so edamame or tofu, tempeh, soy milk. It's a, a very common question that people have when they are looking at moving to a vegan diet. Where do you, where do you sit in terms of soy playing a part in in a whole food plant based diet? And what does what does the science show? Yeah, so soy is an interesting one because for most things, I would say you know you don't need it in excess. Soy is an interesting one where consuming it doesn't have you know really any negative effects. It actually has positive effects. And I know that the science and people will try to tell you that soy has these phytoestrogens that are going to block or prevent testosterone or they're going to increase your chances of breast cancer. But what they don't realize is that, yes, the phytoestrogens in soy, and that's guaianazine, that's some of these other ones. I'm not looking at any notes. I'm trying to pull this from the top of my head. I haven't looked at this probably in about six months. But the the phytoestrogens in soy, I think guaianazine is the, the major one. That activates, that basically is an agonist for an estrogen receptor. So if you if you just stop there, everyone would be alarmed. They're like, you're going to exacerbate the activation of an estrogen receptor, which is one of the things that we know causes breast cancer. Here's the tricky part, is that our body has two forms of estrogen receptors. It has an alpha isoform and a beta isoform. Alpha isoform, I hope I'm saying the, the exact ones in the right locations, but I think people will get the, the general concept. The alpha isoform is the one that has to do with your, your uterus, your, the mammillary glands. It has to do with the ones that we primarily think of when we think of female reproductive organs. That uh, guanazine does not bind to. So that one specifically, if you were to bind it, it would exacerbate breast cancer. The beta isoform does the exact opposite. So it has the negative effect where it down-regulates those specific, same specific pathways. And that's what guanazine binds to. So it's really interesting to think about the fact that soy can bind a receptor that people typically relate to breast cancer, but there's different isoforms. And the isoform that it binds actually protects you from the fluctuations in the hormonal changes on a female body. So from all standpoints, breast cancer um, with soy introduction is actually beneficial they have shown that people that have breast cancer that, that eat soy typically have a reduced risk of adverse effects later on or reduced mortality later on. It also shows that people, when kids when they're younger, um, when they're really young that consume soy, actually have a decreased risk of having some of these cancers um, that have to do with the same specific pathways later in life. Also, soy has been shown because the same receptors are in, hum- are in men as in female, just in different areas, that soy consumption actually may lower your risk of prostate cancer for that same reason because it changes the, the amount of estrogen to testosterone and the androgens that are being produced just through this isoform rather than going into the nitty gritty. Finding that affects it. So they're actually showing that soy consumption actually may lower your risk of prostate cancer um, in the long term. So, I mean, it's really fascinating research. You don't have to take my word for it. You can go on, I, and this is what I t- recommend to everyone don't Google this stuff. You're going to find the wrong things. Go to PubMed, and that's pubmed.gov. You can just look up P U B M E D, look it up, type in the keywords, and then look at the scientific literature there. The common, most people don't have access to the research that will pop up, but you can at least read the abstracts. And then I will give you my email. If anyone has direct questions, I will email you all of the links that give you access to the actual research articles because that's the problem with scientific research is that the lay public doesn't actually have access to them 
whereas I do because I'm at a medical center. So I'm more than happy to give people the exact research so that they can look it up themselves. So that'll be in the show notes for anyone who does want to get in touch with you. Yeah, or DM or DM me on Instagram. Like I respond to every single DM on Instagram. I think the take home point there is don't Google it. If you do Google soy and is it healthy, you're probably likely to come across an article which tells you it's going to give you man boobs, which was was what I first came across before I'd done the research <laughs> myself. And yeah, it, it can be quite confronting when you when you aren't armed with the right research. I can sort of understand why people that are new to a a whole, you know, plant food based diet do have questions around it because there mm-hmm. is so much confusion online. Yeah. So thank you for offering to send those articles to any listeners who want them. That's great. Mm-hmm. Now everything that we're talking about is based, you know, we've, we've spoken about macronutrients, we've spoken about specific foods and supplements and, and whatnot. Where does, you know, our second brain, our gut, where does having a healthy gut function and, and microbiome, can you explain to, the, to, to us what microbiome is? We see it, it's a key word, it's, it's, you know, it's on the front page of health magazines and whatnot, and we hear about eating fermented foods and probiotics. What does this actually mean? to to us at a practical level and how mm-hmm. can we sort of navigate through all these confusing you know words and articles and get our health, get our gut healthy so that we can actually absorb the nutrients from all of the delicious plant-based foods that we are eating yeah so let's let's go on a history lesson and i know i sorry i dive into science way too deep but the history lesson is for good point because Sometimes you have to establish your credibility. On here, I probably don't because I've been studying this way more than most people have ever looked into science and research. The name that the gut is a second brain, right? That is a term that was coined by the field of what's called neurogastroenterology. The term neurogastroenterology is a field that was founded by a guy named Mike Gershon. Mike Gershon is actually one of my academic advisors here at Columbia. He is an 80 year old Swedish man, but he is the one that first term coined the phrase, the second brain being the gut. So the enteric nervous, so when, so when we say the gut is the second brain, that's not because of the epithelial lining. That's not because of the gastrointestinal tract. It's because of the enteric nervous system. And the enteric nervous system is the nerve, the nerves that run throughout the gut that activate and control movement, uh, absorption, secretion, motility, everything, inflammation. Like the, that is the the enteric nervous system that controls everything. That's where my specific research, my expertise comes about. So that was kind of a a history lesson of why I talk about it because I'm in love with the guy. I think the guy is awesome. He is just like my little role model because he's an 80-year-old small man and he'll he'll take all day to explain stuff and talk to me about the history lessons of science and nutrition. So um, this is a guy that you guys really should look up to because he is just... He actually founded the serotonin receptor um, in the gut. So he is... He is a legend in the field, and I'm hoping to have a good paper or two published by him with him in the next, uh, at least the next year. So more to come on on that. But let's actually talk to what your question was, which was, which was more about the gut, the gut microbiome. The gut microbiome is the bacteria in your stomach, and I know that people have said this before, so I'm not going to go into great detail. That there's more bacteria on your body than there are human skin cells, right? It's a huge majority. And then if you actually look at the genes, bacteria make up like 10 times more uh, or a thousand times more genes than humans have. We only have 20,000 genes in the human body, whereas the bacteria in our gut may have, you know, 
trillions. They just have their their gene pathways are just so much more pronounced and and just so much stronger. So from that standpoint, they play a huge role in in function, in health, and disease. And so I want to start this conversation at least off with a disclaimer. And the disclaimer is one that everyone needs to take seriously. And that is that the majority of people doing gut microbiome research do not understand the pathophysiology and the actual physiology of the enteric nervous system. There are a lot of poor studies that have come out in this field saying that this probiotic did this or that the microbiome shifted by this, by that, without an actual look at how it affects host physiology. So what I mean by that is I mean the bacteria affect the actual cells in the gut and that communication and that effect has to be studied by people that know both sides. They have to know the bacteria. They have to know the actual epithelial cells. They have to know the different types of cells along that layer. They have to know how the enteric nervous system works. And then they have to categorize that change. Most of them do not. Most of the microbiome research is just looking at fluctuations in the microbiome and then huge systemic changes, not understanding what it's doing on a mechanistic level-to-level standpoint. So that's more of my research. So let's bring it down to common level because I know that was way so way too esoteric and most people would be like, wow, okay, that was five minutes of nothing that I got out of that. <laughs> so the microbiome is something that everyone should try to cultivate. And I say that because having a good microbiome can prevent disease. It can prevent a lot of uh, the metabolic disease that we do see in America and we see around the world. So how do you cultivate a good microbiome? You think about things like prebiotics. Right. Prebiotic is a term for kind of a mix of foods that are non-digestible foods, typically fibers, and they promote the growth of beneficial microorganisms in your intestine. So they promote, promote bacterial um, growth. They're not digestible by us, but the bacteria break them down and use them to create secondary metabolites or use them to grow themselves. So the two main types of prebiotics are typically fructooligosaccharides or galactooligosaccharides. The most common is fructooligosaccharides. And that's something that most people have heard or they've seen on the shelf as a prebiotic they can take. And that's inulin. So those inulin is found, remind you, it's found in vegetables, right? So you don't need to take it on the supplement. You can find it in vegetables. And the ones like that are leeks, asparagus, bananas, onions. So those are like the top five things that I think everyone should eat in your diet. Now, let's say you can't have asparagus, bananas, onions. I think every culture nowadays eats onions in their diet some way or another. I can't think of a single culture in the world that does not eat onions. Maybe, maybe the Inuit, maybe like parts of uh, um, saw, you know, some, some specific area, but those are the ones that you should include. So let's say you don't, you don't like onions or you don't like bananas, you don't like asparagus. Is it better to just take an over-the-counter supplement of prebiotics? No. The answer is no. And I I hate to say that because I know people don't want to hear that. They want an easy, quick fix. But they did a really good randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, like top-of-the-line science um, on humans, right? So it's not a mouse study. It's or or you know a science. It wasn't a science study. It was actually on humans, and they showed that the inulin prebiotics, most of the prebiotics on the market, had no benefit if the people did not already eat a high-fiber diet themselves. You need the fiber yeah. with the prebiotic. Yeah. And if you're, if, you're ta- if you're eating a high fiber diet, right? If you're eating the vegetables, if you're eating the, the high fiber diet, the amount that you're getting in your diet is already so much more than you'll ever get in a prebiotic pill that 
you actually won't, you'll see very little benefit. Now, if you have a high fiber diet and you want the prebiotic, I guess go for it, waste your money. But I don't think that there's a benefit in, in taking it. But they actually saw the only way they saw any change or a benefit in the prebiotic was if someone was eating a high fiber diet in the first place. So it's not a replacement. It's not a cop out. It's not something that you can take. So where does that put, I mean, the majority of, of Americans and Australians from, from what I've read are fiber deficient. Mm-hmm. Where, where does that place, you know, the majority, majority of the population who aren't getting enough fiber, are they getting the benefit of these prebiotics? No. So they have terrible, they have terrible gut microbiomes, right? And a lot of times people say that a poor or dysbiotic microbiome is caused by um, high fat diets or it's caused by high meat diets. But there's, there's twofold here, right? Correlation does not always equal causation. And I say that because it means a lot in this instance that just because you eat high meat and you have a poor gut microbiome doesn't mean that the meat consumption is causing the, core, the, the poor gut microbiome. It could be that you're eating a lack of fiber. Right. And so they haven't or they haven't pieced that out well enough, but a high fat diet has been shown to create dysbiosis on its own in several fold because high high fat diet has to be broken down by bile acids. So bile acids are, are acids that are produced by your pancreas, you know, your gallbladder and your in your liver. They get excreted, they break it down. Your primary bile acids get moved to your small intestine. The bacteria in your intestines then convert them to secondary bile acids. Secondary bile acids have been shown to do wreak havoc on your gut microbiome. They have been implicated in all sorts of colon cancer, different things. So that for sure. But people that eat a low-fat, low-protein diet have low levels of secondary bile acids in their system. So that tells you if you're not eating high fat, you're not eating high protein, where's your nutrients coming from? It's going to come from fruits and vegetables, which guess what it has in it? Fiber, right? Like, Can, can, you, can you just uh, define dysbiosis? Yeah. So dysbiosis is, um, it's, it's directly linked to having a intestinal permeability membrane. So think about, if you think about the layers of the gut, you first have your food. Then most people think you just have the food and next to that is your cells. That's actually not true. You have another layer, which is the mucus layer. I do a lot of studies with this looking at the mucus layers because the amount and the width and the, the level of depth of the, the mucosa or the mucus layer affects how much bacteria can interact with your cells. A thicker mucus layer is better for overall health. Well, your bacteria live off of two things. They live off of um, fiber. They live off the, the plant-based foods that you eat or they will eat the mucus if they do not have fiber. When you eat the mucus layer, you reduce the, the space between the, the foods and the bacteria and your intestinal cells. So bringing that level, that layer closer to each other has wrecks havoc on the actual membranes that connect the epithelial cells along your entire gastrointestinal tract. That's where you get leakage, you get poor membrane permeability. It's because you have a dysbiosis, which is a breakdown of the membrane layer, um, which is a breakdown of the mucus layer. So it's like three or four different things. Most people, when they say dysbiosis, they just think you have a poor gut microbiome, but it's way more complex than that. And so the, that is a more of a scientific answer than just like the generic, oh, you have a, an unbalance of healthy to negative bacteria in your gut, if that makes sense. 
my my brain is is thinking a lot of things right now. But one of one of them in particular is you, you mentioned that the, the high fat diet is is one way to result in this uh, dysbiosis. Have they done any studies on on you know people that have done the ketogenic diet over over the longer term and and what this looks like in terms of that mucus layer? Yeah. So most mucus layers, if you don't have fiber, your mucus layer will be gone. A high fat diet or a, like high fat diets that we feed in, in mice or in mammals or in scientific research, if we feed a high fat diet, mucus layer breaks down, you get increased membrane permeability, you get increased levels of negative bacterial metabolites like LPS in your blood system. Um, that's been shown, right? There's really only one population that has been shown to eat a high um, fat diet over long terms, and that's the Inuits who did not have good gut health historically, and they died of cardiovascular disease. So they haven't done long-term studies on on humans from that standpoint, but the science is pretty sound on a research perspective that you're going to get a breakdown of this layer, your bacteria are not going to be happy, and you're going to get poor levels of dysbiosis, or you're going to get increased levels of dysbiosis. And so just bringing this back to a practical level, if we do eat um, you know, our high fiber fruits and vegetables, and we're, we're getting these prebiotics into our diet, our bacteria are, are feeding on them. We have a healthy, uh, we have healthy bacteria. We have a healthy uh, mucus layer. Mm-hmm. Does that mean we are actually in a position to break down and absorb the nutrients in our food better? Yeah. So, well, the, the absorption happens at different places throughout the body, right? Your mucus layer affects the small intestine and the colon. Water absorption, most water-soluble things are going to be absorbed in the colon or the distal parts of the small intestine. Fat and protein is typically going to be broken down and absorbed more in the the proximal part of the small intestine. Sugars, um, like direct glucose molecules and salts are going to be absorbed more kind of um, near the proximal part of the duodenum and then also the, the stomach. So it's that's not necessarily a good way to answer. I, I don't have. A, I don't think I have a good enough answer for you because at different levels you would have to look at it specifically with the different mucus layers. Most of my research, I focus on the parts of the colon and parts of the distal parts of the small intestine. Um, but a lot of the things that you're asking about for absorption sake are going to be happening more proximal. Um, and I personally don't do any mucus studies on those, and no one has from what I've read in the research. Now, granted, there could be research articles that I haven't read that are out there, but I don't think I'm in a, in a position to say that makes sense. And, and where, do, where do probiotics fit into all of this? You know, we spoke about <laughs> fish oil, but probiotics is another huge category within this you know, supplement um, market. Where, where, where does the evidence and science sit in terms of taking probiotic supplements? Yeah, so I don't recommend probiotics at all. That would come to a shock as a lot of people, someone who loves the gut microbiome, who studies it. But there is not a single researcher, there's not a single physician, there's not a single scientist that can tell you with certainty that if you eat a probiotic, that it is living, that it, that it makes it to your intestines alive to do something beneficial and either colonize and live there for a longer period of time to have a health end stamp you know, a beneficial health standpoint, or just wash out immediately and end up in your fecal matter. There is no physician that can tell you, even if it makes it to your fecal matter, if it is still alive. And that is because to do that study, 
you would have to engineer the probiotic to have antibiotic resistant genes. We do this in animals all the time, but we there is not there's no like no one has done that study where they look at that in humans per se. So most probiotics do not colonize the gut. They don't live there, meaning they you take them and within 24 hours they're out of your system. The probiotic market is snake oils at its best from like if you think of snake oil back in the day, probiotics, most of them have very low efficacy and efficiency. The amount of probiotics you would need to take would have to be on orders of typically 10 times greater than what most of the markets sell. Most of the markets sell between about 20 billion CFU or they'll say like 5 five billion CFU or 10 billion CFU. What that is, is that's a count of the bacteria. Now, after about a month or six weeks, I think it is, um, half of that level on the market, on the shelf, is already broken down, meaning the bacteria are dead. They're not going to be alive anymore when you put them in your system. And that goes down the more it sits out. Let's say you ship it in a hot container. Let's say you ship it in a truck that's crossing you know, the oceans or most of that breaks down pretty quickly unless it's refrigerated. There's one refrigerated probiotic that if people want to take, I know that has had some beneficial standpoint and that's VSL-3. I've had patients and clients that have taken it and have it has wrecked havoc on their gut system because they had actually a really healthy microbiome. And then they took this thing that just was way too many bacteria that were actually beneficial, but it just destroyed their native microbiome and they had gut issues for the next you know six to eight weeks as we try to bring it back to where it was and restore it. So most people don't need to take them. It's really kind of uh, not necessarily something that you need to take. If you want to foster a good microbiome, eat the prebiotic foods that I already mentioned, eat your high fiber foods, and that is enough. If you want to think about kimchi or sauerkrauts or think about other things that have naturally bacteria in them, great, go for it. Um, because that has bacteria that lives on the plants that you're going to eat if you're eating the plants by themselves anyway. So more the power to you. I think those are stuff that I always try to incorporate in my diet, but I don't take any probiotics, um, nor do I recommend them if you have a normal functioning GI tract. And and how does how does someone listening actually identify if they have a poor poor microbiome, poor digestion? What are the what are the sort of telltale symptoms, signs that lead towards someone needing to look at at you know developing better microbiome? If you think you may be having a gut problem, I always recommend go, going to see a gastroenterologist, someone that's trained to look at your gastrointestinal tract um, and look at it. Now most gastroenterologists. God love them because I want to be one and I look up to them because they're doing amazing work. Most of them don't understand the gut microbiome well enough. And that's that's because they haven't had the chance or the, or the education to really dive into some of the research on the gut microbiome. And there's not enough that has been moved clinically yet. So, so they may not have that training. But some of the telltale signs that I always tell people are if you're having trouble with bowel movements, if you're having you know, high levels of discomfort when you eat. If you are feeling like you have stomach pains or stomach issues, if you have nutritional deficiencies, maybe you went and had blood work done. So you had like a B12 checked and maybe you had your homocysteine levels checked or you've had some, you know, some nutritional things checked in your blood work and it's off. That may be a breakdown because you don't have good enough bacteria in your gut um, or you maybe have dysbiosis or other things. So the actual clinical symptoms of it are very vague. They're nothing more than the clinical symptoms of, of cancer 
or headaches, right? Like you, there's sometimes like a, a headache can have multiple um, things that happen with it. With the gastrointestinal tract, a lot of times it's it's very much the same, right? You could have eaten bad food, or you could have a breakdown of your gastro of your gut microbiome. And so there's not really a great answer I wish that I could give on on this specific one. But most people I think know if they have gut issues. And I say that because the, the pain receptors, so the, the, the pain receptors in your gut are some of the strongest, most telltale um, pain receptors in the human body. And so most people understand if they're uncomfort, uncom- if they have a, a level of dysbiosis or if they have gastrointestinal issues. I will say that with a caveat. I'm sorry, I know it looks like you have another question, but I'll say that with a caveat that oftentimes increasing or shifting your diet to a high fiber diet will create some discomfort, no different than a high fat diet will do, right? It will create some discomfort because now you're feeding the bacteria. They're excited. They're breaking stuff down. They're creating extra gases. They're enjoying it. They're thriving. But you get to be kind of the the guinea pig for that. And and it may not go over so well, but if you stick to it over the course of a couple of weeks or a month, it typically goes away and your microbiome typically will normalize quite quickly. As long as you don't have drastic fluctuations in what you're in your food consumption, if that makes sense. You, you read my mind exactly. So we'd spoken about fiber and I wanted to, to address that because a common question is I'm transitioning to a plant-based diet. I don't think I'm coping with the extra fiber. I'm feeling a little bit bloated, a little bit gassy. So it's good that you are reassuring just to stick with it and your gut microbiome will adjust. And Yeah. And, and, and listen, I'm not saying that from like my high horse of like, I've been plant-based for 10 years and I, I've never had that issue before. No, quite the contrary. Like, like I was almost raw and I was eating all, all fruits and vegetables for two years, maybe three years. And then I moved to New York um, a couple of years ago and I had a, a stomach bug because I ate a vegetable burrito at a, at a, you know, a Mexican stand. And, you know, within hours I had huge gastroenteritis. I had to be in the bathroom. I had stuff coming out both ends. And that you know, that type of scenario will alter your gut microbiome drastically. And it took probably about six months to reestablish the old flora that I had reestablish where I wasn't getting that type of bloating sensation when I was eating high fiber. So I know exactly what it feels like. It's painful. You will have unpleasant gas. Your girlfriend or your spouse or your wife or your husband may not like it. If you're, you know, if you have flashlights or you have stuff coming out, you know, but it will normalize eventually. As long as you stick to the healthy foods and you don't deviate from them, eventually it will normalize. If you want something to maybe settle it in the meantime, you can try an over-the-counter probiotic. I still recommend VSL-3 if you can get it. That's the only one I ever recommend, but know that it could not, it could do the opposite of what you expect. But I recommend just sticking to it. And then if you're really having bloating issues, do it the opposite way. So a lot of people, here's here's a really practical, most people think that when they want to flip that way, that they're going to break down their foods by blending it, breaking it down in a blender, because that will allow the fiber to be pre-digested or pre-broken down so that maybe it won't cause as much bloating later on. That's the exact opposite you want to do. If you're having trouble transitioning, start by cooking your, your high fiber foods, your vegetable foods. So you get some rid of some of the water. The fiber is going to be less less um, available to the bacteria, but it's still going to be available just enough. So you'll get low levels of discomfort. 
slowly move away from the cooking and move to like non-cooked fiber that it's a slow transition to there. And then if you like that, then think about adding those high fiber foods into like a blender or something, because that increases your body's ability, your bacteria's availability to break them down. And so the most level of discomfort you're going to get is typically from foods that have been, that are raw, that are blended, because that is where the uh, availability of breakdown is at its highest. So it's opposite of what most people think. On the, the, the topic of, you know, sort of damaging your flora, you, you mentioned that you, you ate something at the Mexican stand and it took you five, six months to, to get that, that healthy bacteria back. Where does, where does sort of antibiotics and prescription medications, where do these come into play in terms of affecting our gut microbiome? And if, you know, are, are they the only thing that we need to look at in terms of doing the opposite of what we want to do, which is helping our microbiome thrive? Um, and is there anything, yeah, is there anything else other than, than antibiotics that we should be avoiding? Yeah, antibiotics wreak havoc for young kids. If they can prevent antibiotic use at all, do it. Like try to just not allow your kids to take antibiotics. I mean, obviously there's cases where medically necessity, you need to take antibiotics. And I am the last person to say otherwise, because I will be prescribing them. I will give them to my patients when necessary. But in the US, we have a huge antibiotic issue. And it's not just antibiotics that are prescribed to humans, but it's antibiotics that are used in foods. Antibiotics in the US for every 1,000 people, I think like 800 plus prescriptions are prescribed a year. Now, not, not 800 out of 1,000 people are taking antibiotics. Some people are taking them four or five times a year. But it's really important to realize that when you take an antibiotic, it will drastically affect your gut microbiome and the populations that are present. It's not going to kill all of them. It's going to kill a large majority. And then you're going to have to repopulate it back. And so you can have lasting effects years down the road from, an antibi- from taking an antibiotic, if not. If your doctor prescribes it, I still recommend that you take it because it was for a good reason. But just know that if you can avoid it, please do. And I can't in this, I can't talk about antibiotics without talking about the biggest antibiotic at all. Um, and that's glyphosate, right? Glyphosate, which is a traditional roundup um, used for genetically engineered crops. Glyphosate is categorized as an antibiotic. It kills bacteria through the shikimate pathway. It kills them in your gut. So eating crops that are heavily sprayed with glyphosate that have not been washed properly or not been um, decontaminated, that's basically taking an antibiotic trace amounts every single meal if you're not doing a good job of of preventing that. And obviously that's hard when you go out to eat, when you go to restaurants, um, but there are ways to limit it as much as possible. Yeah, I know personally when, I'm, when I eat out, if there's you know, tofu or, or things like that on the menu, I do ask if it's, if it's organic, non-GMO and where possible when shopping. I mean, I, when I'm shopping, I always look for that non-GMO label on the yes. food. So let me, let me say this because I'm a scientist and I want to be clear. I have nothing wrong with genetically modified organisms. My actual research, I engineer bacteria, meaning I do genetic engineering. People are going to hear that and get probably turned off, but it's really cool technology and it's fascinating. I don't think engineering something to change its genome to produce something or to break down something is bad. What's bad is the pathways that are added for the reason that they prevent being, uh, basically prevent being killed by, by a weed killer or by an antibiotic, right? You're basically creating a resistant 
resistant plant to the to the to the um, antimicrobial that you're going to be spraying on the on the plants. And that to me is what's causing the issue. It's the actual Roundup. It's the actual chemical. It's not the genetically engineered part itself, if that makes sense. And just just sort of taking a couple steps back, mm-hmm. I, sh- I should have asked this question first, but we were, we were speaking about flatulence, which is a little bit taboo, generally not something that someone would <laughs> comment on on, my, on one of my photos on the feed, but it, it is a very common private message for obvious reasons in that commenting on a photo is fairly public. Friends and family could probably see that. But so what if someone has transitioned to a plant-based diet or, or been eating a plant-based sort of diet for many years, but is still having issues with flatulence? Do you have any tips for them and, and how can they look at their diet and potentially adjust or modify things to, to help with that? Yeah, so this is where... I think trial and error and not research is the answer. And I say that because from my own standpoint, I've been doing this for several years. I had it down to where I never had flatulence. I could eat whatever I wanted, never had an issue. This will shock you, but the only time I ever have it now is if I take protein shakes. So that is contrary to what most people think. There's one brand that doesn't bother me at all, and that's one of the brands that I like. I rotate it, but there's specific brands that protein shakes actually give me more flatulence than not. I'm not taboo about talking it. I want to be a gastroenterologist. I'll talk about about poop all day with people. But Is it the type of protein source in those protein powders? Have you identified a certain type, whether it's pea or soy, that you've identified as causing that with you? Yeah. So most of the ones that I take are um, mixes. The When I used to, when I said that I used to have it down solid, when I was taking like plant protein or or, um, pea protein, or I was taking brown rice protein. When I was taking an individual isolate by itself, I never had issues. Uh, it was only after I shifted to some of the more multi-formed ones. And so I don't know if it's necessarily a specific thing in them, or it's maybe an emulsifier that they add, which wreak havoc on the gut. I don't know if it's, you know, sometimes they add sweeteners or they add this or that. I try to stay as, you know, to the rare form as possible, but, you know, sometimes you you find whatever you find or you, you see a sale and you just buy it. And sometimes that's typically been my issue. So if people are having issues, it may not just be the fiber aspect of it. You really have to look and narrow down other things you're eating. And so you have to think outside the box. And sometimes it's not the fiber. It's not the bananas. It's not the onions or it's not the asparagus that's causing the flatulence. It's actually uh, maybe an emulsifier that's in a protein shake that you're taking. And the emulsifier itself have been shown to wreak havoc on that same mucous membrane that we talked about covering the epithelial cells of your gut. So there are other things that it could be. And so if people have serious issues with this, most doctors aren't going to go into that level of depth of trying to, you know, figure out exactly what it is. But I am always open to people DMing me and us talking about it. I am open to that because that's kind of what I'm passionate about. I will be adamant that I'm not a trained gastroenterologist yet. I'm still a medical student, but I know more about nutrition than most of the physicians because of my, my background and training. So I'm more than happy to have a, a non-clinical discussion and talk about nutrition for, with anyone. Well, Frank, this has been a, a really in-depth and insightful conversation. I, I could lit, uh, literally, and, and um, speaking very truthfully, I could talk to you for hours and I've, I've already penciled down a couple of other topics for future podcasts. So I'd like to thank you for being on the show. 
And as I said before, I'm going to have your Instagram handle email in the show notes so anyone can reach out, get in contact with you. You're doing an amazing job and um, it's fascinating to see someone combine science with the clinical aspect and, you know, look to, to educate, you know, the people in the positions who have the most power and that is the doctors and physicians out there filling that void as you spoke about. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to see where things go for you from here. Yeah, I look forward to having you back on the show in the future. Yeah. And, and Simon, I want to thank you for not only your work that you're doing, but you're bringing this information to the to the general public. You're bringing it in a way that I think is really absorbable and people are going to take it to uh, to heart. We didn't talk about my own, like what I'm doing now on an exercise level. And so maybe we'll dive into that next time. But I also just want to tell people that no matter where they're at in their transition, maybe they're not plant-based, maybe they're fully plant-based. Um, I always tell people this because as a scientist, I have to remind myself about this. As much as I learn, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. And it's okay to be wrong as a plant-based physician, as a health nut. It's okay to not know everything. So always read comments or read questions or read information with a grain of salt, but also come from a perspective that people don't do stuff um, because they think they're wrong. They always do stuff because they think they're right. And with that, like I think that this movement is creating more love and compassion in the world than what was previously invested. And so I really just want to thank everyone for taking the time to listen if they got this far. But I'm excited to see how big this podcast is grow. And thank you for everything that you've given. Thank you very much. We'll chat again soon. Yeah, thanks, Simon. And that's this week's episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. Connect with myself and the Plant Proof community at plantproof.com and at plant underscore proof on Instagram. Don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to receive our free plant-based nutritional information, including recipes, important blogs, and much more direct to your inbox. Until next time, folks, I'm your host, Simon Hill. Keep your spacesuit plant-proof. <laughs>